0: Well, good morning. (laughs) This is uh, you guys' one-minute warning (laughs) to make your way back to your seats. It is uh, so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. Uh, Yeah, this Sunday is Family Sunday. And it's also Promotion Sunday. And so our mission here at Forest Park is to, to make disciples, um, not just with the adults, but also with the children. And so one of the things that we've noticed um, is sometimes it is a hard time uh, for kids who have children's church to transition into um, adult church. And so once a month, uh, we have some of the older kids who go, who used to go to children's church now come um, and just participate in adult church with us. And it is really a wonderful opportunity for you as a parent to decide your child to explain what all these different elements mean and why we do what we do and what it all means. And then by the time they reach um, fifth grade or sixth grade, then hopefully that transition is easier. And so I know a lot of parents as this is uh, your first time, maybe your, your kid is here, they have transitioned out of Ignite and now into the sanctuary every Sunday. And so that's a very scary thought, a very sad thought as I look at my own children growing up so fast. I feel like just the other day, I dropped them off at nursery, and now one's about to graduate from Ignite in here. Um, and so it's sad, but then it's also a, a joyful time, which means they're growing. And so I want to encourage you as parents, it's okay to be sad, um, and I, it's okay to be a little fearful, like, how's my child going to transition from Ignite uh, to adult service? And so I want to encourage you to use this um, as an opportunity to try to engage them throughout the service, and even after the service. Like One of the things I'm, I'm trying to do to maybe make it a little helpful is have both with fill in the blanks. And so at least you can have your child like, hey, why don't you try to fill in the blanks that's on the projector screen? And maybe uh, throughout the week, uh, talk about the service. What did you think about the service? What do you think communion means? Why do you think we participate in communion? What verse stood out to you? What song stood out to you? Or maybe even during family worship, you can sing one of the songs, We sang on Sunday morning. And so there's a variety of tools that's available out there for you to disciple your child. So I just want to encourage you as parents, um, as your child is transitioning from Ignite um, to Adults Church, be intentional in discipling them. If they feel that they're a little bored, don't freak out. That's okay. I think every kid is bored at church sometimes, even me, okay? Um, But use as an opportunity to try to re-engage them in it. So let me pray for us. Let's get into the word. Let's pray uh, over our kids that are transitioning here. And let's pray that the Lord would just really meet us and minister to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for your mercy, for your grace. Lord, thank you uh, that when we gather, you are here with us. Your spirit is present. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, can you speak to us? Can you engage us? Um, Lord, you know each and every one in this room. You know where we're from. You know what we're thinking. You know what we're doing. Um, And say, can you speak to them? Lord, I pray for our kids that are transitioning to adult church. Can you help them with that transition? Lord, can you in this service just stir their hearts? Can you help them to listen? Help them to stay engaged? Can you open up their little ears, their eyes, their hearts? Can they... As Paul says, their secrets of their heart will be revealed, and as a result, they will fall face down and worship God. Lord, that's my prayer for our kids. That's my prayer for us as a church. Lord, can there be people in here saying, God is in your midst, and as their sin has been exposed and they're convicted by it, may they worship you, and may their life be radically transformed. And so, Lord, speak to us as we talk about tongues and prophecy, which unfortunately is very controversial, but it shouldn't be. Um, Lord, can you help us to, to look at your scripture? Can you help us to be open? And can you help us to practically apply this to our lives? Can you help us to approach this text in humility? And can your name be glorified in all that we do? And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen so we are in first corinthians chapter 14 um and so over the last couple weeks really um 1 Corinthians chapter 12 all the way through chapter 14, Paul's dealing with the exact same issue, um, the issue of spiritual gifts. And it seems like what's been happening in the church of Corinth and really the big problem was there were some Christians in the church who kind of desired these flashy spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues. And in their minds, if they had that gift, um, they seemed to be more superior than other Christians that, didn't have, that did not have that gift. And so what was happening is they were elevating themselves and their gifts over other Christians that might not have had that gift. And so Paul started addressing this issue. And so the point he kind of made in chapter 12, he's writing to the church kind of like in a pastoral way, indirect way. He says, this is what I want you to think about. Like if God is the one who gives us these spiritual gifts according to his will, according to how he chooses, and if God is the one who's empowering you with these spiritual gifts, and the purpose of these spiritual gifts is to build up the church for the common good and to display the diversity diversity of the church with the gifts and unity, then it's really foolish for you to elevate one gift over another. And then last week, Paul kind of talked about in chapter 13, he, he says that no matter what spiritual gifts the Holy Spirit gives you and empowers you, that gift does not benefit anyone if it's not exercised in love. And so love is essential of how we exercise our spiritual gift. And so if we exercise a spiritual gift and love is absent, Paul says, you're wasting your time. It's absolutely meaningless. It's absolutely useless. And then he kind of even made the point that love is even more important than spiritual gifts. Because here's the reality. One day, spiritual gifts will be no more. Jesus is going to come back, make all things new, and these gifts will no longer be needed. But guess what will endure forever? Love. And so in our text today, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul's going to show them that in exercising their spiritual gift in love, their main concern in exercising their spiritual gift should be the building up of the church, especially when the church gathers for corporate worship. And what that means is there will be times where we put aside some of our spiritual gifts because it might not benefit the entire church. So in other words, because there are some spiritual gifts that are more edifying with the corporate gathering of the church than others. So that does not mean one spiritual gift is more important than another, but it does mean that there are certain spiritual gifts that are more edifying to the church, more building up of the church Than others. And this is where Paul now is going to talk about tongues and prophecy. So here's what we're going to do we're going to try to read a majority of the text. I'm going to try to define tongues and prophecy according to the passage and how they should be exercised in the context of what Paul is writing to. We'll take some of the principles, the main principles that Paul is giving us in the exercising of tongues and prophecy. We'll talk about that. And then we're going to go line by line for the last part of the passage, verse 20 to 25. Does that sound like a plan? All right. Let's have some fun with this passage because I do think it's a pretty neat passage. All right. Verse 1 says this. Chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in another tongue is not speaking to people but to God. Since no one understands him, he speaks mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. The person who speaks in another tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I wish all of you spoke in other tongues, but even more that you prophesy. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in other tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even lifeless instruments that produce sound with a flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the bulge makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world. None is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. Therefore, the person who speaks in another tongue should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the Spirit and I also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the Spirit, and I will also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the outsider say amen at your giving thanks? Since he does not know what you are saying. For you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in other tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in another tongue. All right, we made it. So notice, right off the bat, there are two spiritual gifts that Paul draws our attention to. He constantly repeats them and he compares them. What are the two spiritual gifts? Tongues and and prophecy. So that's why I think as we unpack this passage, I think it will be helpful for us to kind of define these spiritual gifts in light of our passage in the context that Paul uses them. And then also talk about like in what context should these spiritual gifts be exercised. Okay? You guys ready? So if you're a newcomer, don't worry. We won't get too weird. Okay? So let's talk about tongues. Um, It's not on the screen, it's not on your bulletin, but here is a helpful definition for tongues. Now let me give you a little footnote here. When I'm speaking about the definition of tongues, I'm speaking about the definition of tongues only in this passage of 1 Corinthians. Okay? So what, what, what passage am I speaking about defining tongues? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14. It's going to be helpful later on, and I'm going to explain it to you. Don't worry, Jamie. You're fine. Okay? So here's the definition of tongues in this passage. According to this passage, in the context of the passage, tongues refers to an individual praising God in a language that he neither speaks nor his hearers understands unless God supernaturally interprets or reveals it. So what is tongues in this passage? is a person, he's praising God in a language that he does not know, in a language that the other people do not know. And the only way for anyone to know is unless God supernaturally reveals that interpretation. You're like, how did you come up with that definition? I Googled it, no, I'm just joking. Look at verse two here. Look at the passage in verse two. Here's where where I came up with the definition. For the person who speaks in another tongue is not speaking to people, but to who? He's speaking to God. So in other words, tongues is a person praising God or praying to God. And he does not understand what he is saying. Because here's the second part. He speaks mysteries in the spirit. So in other words, he does not understand the language. In a sense, it's a mystery to him. Further down the passage, Paul says those people don't understand it because it's not their language unless God reveals it. Look at verse 13. The person, therefore the person who speaks in another tongue should pray that he can interpret. So based on this passage, I think we can come up with a clear definition. What is speaking in tongues? Tongues is somebody, an individual praising God, they don't know what they're they don't know the language they're speaking, nor do those around them hear the language that they're speaking unless God supernaturally reveals it through interpretation. Everybody gets that. I think we're still safe here. But here's the danger part. So here's the big question, okay? The big question is, if tongues, does the tongues that Paul is referring in this passage, does it refer to a language? That that person might not understand, but it is a human language that other people might be able to understand. Okay? Or is it? does it refer to a verbal pattern of words that could not I- be identified as a human language, as some people call it, a heavenly language? Okay, so that's the question. The question is, Is tongues and what Paul is referring to in our passage, is it a a, a human language that maybe the person who is speaking it does not understand, but you would look at all the different languages that exist and you can identify it as a human language, or is the tongues a language that no human can identify, but in the sense as they call it, quote unquote, a heavenly language. So here is where most people come to differ on this passage. And so here's the good news. It really doesn't matter if we differ. It doesn't matter if you agree or disagree with me, okay? I don't think it's a heaven-hell issue, and I don't think it's worth um, coming with your pitchforks and standing strong on it, okay? So I used to be one view, but now as I studied this passage, it used to be like, no, it's only a human language. It's not a heavenly language. But now as I look at the passage, I think it could possibly be both, okay? Okay? So here's me getting a little controversial. I think it would be both. But here's why, with good reasons, okay? Before you shut me out, just just listen to me. Look at verse 2 here. Verse verse 2, Paul says, For the person who speaks in another tongue is not speaking to people but to God, since no one understands him. He speaks what? Mysteries in his spirit. So in a sense, that could be Another human language that no one in the audience understands, or it could be a heavenly language that could be, in a sense, a, a mystery. No one really understands it. Here is where I think this is the part that really helped me understand why I think it could be both. And here's what we have to, have to understand. When I said about when I'm defining tongues, when I was being in tongues, what passage am I talking about? Entire scripture or just a certain passage? Just a certain passage, okay? Okay. Here's why I think that's important. Because here's why. The word tongues in our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 does not always mean the same tongues in other passages like the book of Acts. Okay? That's one of the things we have to understand. When you read about the people speaking in tongues in Acts, is not the same as people speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians. And here's why I say it. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, who is the person speaking in tongues? Is it a group or an individual? It is an individual who's speaking to God, praising God that he doesn't understand, and no one else understands him unless it's interpreted. But then we go to Acts chapter 2. In tongues, who's speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2? Remember when the Spirit came and and tongues of fire rested on who? On an individual or on a group? It, it, It rested on a group, okay, and... When they were speaking in tongues, that the hearers understand? Yes, the hearers understood because they're standing on the side and they're saying, how could it possibly be that these people are doing what? They're praising God in our own language. Okay? And yet in 1 Corinthians, it's an individual speaking to God. No one understands. And yet in Acts chapter 2, it's a group. People are understanding. Another reason is the purpose of speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 was different than that in the book of Acts compared to 1 Corinthians 14. So think about that. When we we see tongues throughout the book of Acts, what was the main purpose? Why did these people continually speak in the book of tongues throughout the book of Acts? Not the book of tongues. Tongues throughout the book of Acts. Like, Like, why did they do that? I will tell you why. Here's why. The main purpose of tongues in Acts was so that it would be a visible display of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Mainly, you had Jews who did not think that God would accept Gentiles. And yet, these Jews are seeing Gentiles Speaking in tongues. And what did that reveal? It revealed that they're receiving the Holy Spirit. And if they're receiving the Holy Spirit, that means now God has accepted them too. That was the main purpose. Like think about when Peter went to Cornelius. uh, He's preaching the gospel to the household of Cornelius. He doesn't even give an invitation. All of a sudden, all these household people in Cornelius house started speaking in tongues. And all Peter's friends that are all Jews, they're looking at this and they're like, well, I guess God gave them the Holy Spirit because they're speaking in tongues. And so when Peter came back to the church in Jerusalem that was filled with Jews and they wanted these Gentiles to become Jews, in order for God to accept and you must become a Jew, Peter's like, whoa, whoa, time out here. I went to a Gentile's house and guess what happened? They spoke in tongues, which means they were filled with the Holy Spirit, which means God has accepted them without them becoming Jews. And all Peter's buddies, they were all Jews saying, yeah, we saw that too. So the purpose of tongues in the book of Acts was a visible display of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That was the purpose. But in 1 Corinthians, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of them speaking in tongues? Paul says this, what are they doing? He says when somebody's speaking in tongues, who they're building up? Look at verse, uh, verse, verse 4. The person who speaks in another tongue does what? He, he builds himself up. He's praying to God, he, he builds himself up. Do you see that the purpose of what's happening in 1 Corinthians 14 is completely different than what happens in the book of Acts? And so that's why I don't think we have to kind of get our panties in a knot over whether it's an actual language or a heavenly language, because the purpose of Acts and the purpose of 1 Corinthians when it comes to speaking in tongues is completely different. And this is what we have to understand. Now, here's a couple of false perceptions when it comes to speaking in tongues. <clears throat> when a person speaks in tongues... That person is not losing control and the Holy Spirit is taking over. And here's why I say that. Look at, look at verse, in chapter 14, look at verse 27 and 28. We're going to talk about that passage next week, but I feel like I need to mention it. Look at verse 27. If anyone speaks in another tongue, there are to be only two or three at most, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. So in other words, that person is losing control because what does Paul say? When you speak in tongues, take turns. So what does that mean? You have still control of your body. And if there's no interpretation, you might have to decide to be quiet and sit down. What does that imply? You still have control over your body. Uh, Also, another thing that we have to understand in our passage here. Is that speaking in tongues is not a reliable indicator that you are a Christian and that you have the Holy Spirit. And here's why I say that. Because not all Christians have the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. And yet all Christians have what? The Holy Spirit. You're like, how do I come up with that? Well, look at verse 5. Paul says, I wish all of you spoke in other tongues. Like, why did we wish that all spoke in tongues? Because not everybody does. Not everybody has that spiritual gift. And yet, they are Christians. Speaking in tongues does not imply that you are a mature Christian and you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Um, Actually, maybe speaking in tongues in corporate worship might show a lack of immaturity because who you're building up? You're building up yourself. And what does Paul say? Who should should you be concerned about? Yourself or the body? The body. So r- real quick here, recap. What is speaking in tongues? Speaking in tongues is an individual praising God in a language that he does not understand nor his hearers, unless God supernaturally interpreted. Could it be a human language? Could it be a heavenly language? I say it could be both in this passage because tongues was different in Acts and different in 1 Corinthians. It's not an indicator that you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit nor an indicator that you are a spiritually mature person. It could be an indicator, maybe the opposite, if you don't learn how to control that or exercise that spiritual gift. So so then here's a big question. So in what's the best context that that gift should be exercised in? It seems like what Paul is implying, the best way to exercise that spiritual gift is in private prayer. Look at verse 4. This person who speaks in another tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So when you're praying privately you're in a sense building yourself up look at verse 16 otherwise if you pray with the spirit how will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you're saying for you may very well be giving thanks but the other person is not being built up i thank god that i speak in other tongues more than all of you yet in the church i'd rather speak five words with my understanding so it almost does seem like the best context for that for that spiritual gift to be exercised is not really in the public gathering of worship, but rather in private prayer. And if it is exercised in the public gathering of corporate worship, what is it what is required? Interpretation. All right. L- 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 let's move on. Let's talk about prophecy. So we talked about tongues. Now let's talk about prophecy. Definition. Again. According to this passage, and you'll understand why I say that. Prophecy in our passage refers to an individual sharing with others an encouraging insight that they sense God has spontaneously revealed. So in other words, what's prophecy? It's an individual sharing an encouraging insight that they sense, they feel like God has spontaneously laid on their heart. Look look at verse 3. It says this. On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for what? For their strengthening, encouragement, and in a sense, consoling them. So which means prophecy in this passage, not in the Bible, but in this passage, is not a prediction of the future of doom and gloom. It's not like somebody coming up and saying, the rapture is happening at 12 a.m. right tomorrow, and you need to all repent. It's not a prediction of the future, but rather prophecy in this context is somebody sharing a word of the Lord, but with what purpose? To strengthen the believer, to encourage the believer, to, to maybe console a believer who is struggling. And also those who are exercising this gift of prophecy. They're not speaking with absolute authority saying, thus says the Lord. Because Paul says that when somebody shares a word from the Lord, what are you supposed to do with that word? In verse 29, he tells you to evaluate the word. Look at verse 29 here. Two prophets should speak and the other should evaluate. In other words, they should look at it and conclude whether it is from the Lord or not, whether it is right or whether it is wrong. Which means that if this gift of prophecy is exercised, it must be exercised in humility, mutual understanding that their insights and what they sense that God has revealed could be wrong. So in other words, when somebody is saying says to you in private, Hey Jeff, I have a word from the Lord for you. This is what God says and this is God's word. That's warning signs. But if somebody comes to you and say, hey, Jeff, brother, you've been heavy on my heart, and I feel like the Lord might have a word for you. Here's the word. Think about it. See how it ministers to you. I hope it's there to strengthen you and to encourage you, maybe console you. I don't know what's going on in your life, but, but maybe it can be there to minister you. That is kind of the way that gift should be exercised. I think it's also helpful for us to understand. Remember when I defined prophecy? That I, did I find, defined prophecy in all the Bible, just in this passage, just in this passage, because it's helpful for us to understand the prophecy in this passage differs from the prophecy in the Old Testament. In general, Old Testament prophets were speaking whose word? God's word. That means when they were directly speaking God's word, to disbelieve or disobey the prophet's word was to disbelieve or disobey God's word. Were there false prophets in the Old Testament? Absolutely, but they were so apparent that they were contrary to God's word completely. But here in the New Testament, we don't really have much of a sense prophets. It does seem like the Old Testament prophets could be compared to the New Testament apostles. And here's why I say that. Because what's going to happen is Paul's going to say, hey, you might prophesy, but what I'm writing is God's command, which means I'm an apostle and I'm exercising my authority over you. Look, look at verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 37 to 38. Look how Paul establishes his authority over prophets. And that's why you can see Old Testament prophets is different to the New Testament prophets that, that he talks about in the church because apostles really are the old uh, compared to the Old Testament prophets. Verse 37 says this, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. That's some strong language that Paul is using. You know what Paul is saying? Yo, you think you're a prophet? Let me remind you I'm an apostle. What I'm writing to you comes with authority. It is God's word. And if you ignore it, you yourself will be ignored. And so my point with that is when we think about prophets and prophecy, it's not the same in the Old Testament. It's different than in the New Testament, especially in the passage that Paul is talking about. Also, when you read about prophecy or prophets throughout the New Testament, it means a little something different in every passage. So, for example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 16 to 18, where Peter quotes uh, the prophet Joel, he says, uh, when he talks about prophecy, it kind of uh, includes this broad category of tongues, visions, and dreams. In Acts 21, you had Agabus, who was a prophet, and he kind of predicted the future of what's going to happen to Paul. He takes his belt, and he ties him up and says, yo, you're going to go to jail. This is what's going to happen you so watch out and yet in first corinthians it's not a prediction of the future it's not doom or gloom but what kind of word is it supposed to be word of strengthening encouragement and consoling does everybody kind of understand prophecy tongues okay do you all agree with me no you don't have to that's cool so what's the best context in which prophecy should be exercised in corporate worship so what does prophecy look like in corporate worship and i think this will might be the most helpful for you guys um I think sometimes when we read the passage, we have this weird picture of the church just kind of sitting down and nobody does anything until somebody gets a word from the Lord and and they stand up and they share a word of the Lord and then they sit down and then somebody comes up and shares a word of the Lord and then they sit down. I don't think that is what Paul is talking about. I think prophecy could be sprinkled throughout the corporate worship service. Okay? And this is what I mean by that. For example... Right now, what am I doing? I am teaching God's word, okay? I'm teaching God's word. In a sense, it could be prophecy, but what I think what Paul means in this passage is spontaneous revelation, that if I had to give you my manuscripts, uh, so for example, like I type my sermon out word for word, and there are some Sundays that I memorize it and I preach it word for word. So if I give you my manuscripts, you'll follow line for line for line for line, and you'll be like, oh man, this guy is sticking to it. But then there are some Sundays, you follow line for line for line, and then all of a sudden I'm going somewhere else. Why? What's happening? As I'm preaching and being filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, the word of the Word came. God maybe gives me a scripture to quote, or an encouraging word to tell you. So that means I take my plant manuscript and I put it to the side and I'm obedient to what I feel like the Spirit leads me. That is one way and where there could be prophecy. Another way is um, the people that lead our confession and assurance. Sometimes we prepare for them what to say. Others we say, hey, just prepare a general presentation of the gospel. And sometimes they prepare and they say something, just what they prepare. Or sometimes they say something and they just take what they prepare to the side. Why? Because God is spontaneously revealing a word to encourage, to strengthen. Um, I was not going to say, it, but I'm going to say, it. there's this guy in our church. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm just going to be loving to him. I don't know why we give him the mic. We should stop giving him the mic. He's supposed to play guitar and sing. But sometimes, I think his name is Jason. He's kind of hiding somewhere. He gets a mic and what does he do? He gives a word of What? He gives a word of encouragement. He shares a Bible verse. And in my mind, I'm thinking to him, Jason, I just preached the word. Just go sit down, buddy. Do your job. No, I'm just kidding. I love him. But what's happening? The Lord is spontaneously putting a word in his heart. And what is he doing? He's sharing it. Barrett has done it. Not as much as Jason, though. <laughs> that is how prophecy is sprinkled throughout the service. I've even seen in some churches where during a time of prayer, there's—we won't do it. Maybe we'd. I don't know. They have a mic, literally a mic here. And if the Lord, if during a time of prayer and people are praying, if the Lord lays a word upon your heart, they have people come and just share a short word, saying, "Hey, the Lord has really been speaking to me and laid this verse on my heart." I don't know who it's for. Maybe it's just for me. But if it's to somebody else, I just want to share it. It's not planned, it's spontaneous, it's not wacko, it's still within the constraints of God's Word with the purpose of encouraging and edifying or consoling. That's how prophecy, in a sense, could happen throughout the worship. And that is what Paul talks about in our passage here. So, two principles in our passage that Paul gives us. Here's the very first principle. Now that we understand the definition of tongues and prophecy, the best context in which they should be exercised, one in private prayer, the other one in, in, in corporate worship, here's the very first principle that Paul gives us if you're taking notes. In exercising your spiritual gift, prioritize the building up of the church. And exercising your spiritual gift, prioritize the building up of the church. And so in our passage, what does Paul show tongues builds up who? The individual. Prophecy builds up who? The church. And that is why Paul says, if you're genuinely pursuing these spiritual gifts and love, in the context, and in the context of corporate gathering. There are times that you take spiritual gifts and you lay it to the side because it doesn't really build up the church. It doesn't really edify. It doesn't mean they're no longer important. It just means at that time, that is not the best way for it to be exercised. Like tongues, lay it to the side and let's interpret it. But make sure prophecy, because what does prophecy always do? It builds up. It edifies. And again, Paul's not saying prophecy is superior to tongues. He is just simply saying prophecy builds up tongues. It's kind of like the same thing. I don't know if it's a spiritual gift. Um, Corporate singing has more of a tendency to build up the church, right? Because what does it call you to do? It calls you to sing. But interpretive dancing, I'm not going to even try yet. (laughs) Interpretive dancing, like that doesn't really build you up really because what do you do? You kind of just watch. It makes me feel good dancing. That's as much as you're going to see me move. You know, it makes me feel good. But for you, you're like, oh, that's cute. I don't know what that's for. That doesn't mean that, that I can't in my private worship dance for the Lord. David did it. But in corporate worship, that might not be the best context in which it should exercise. Because what should be my priority in corporate gathering? Build up the church. So, what gifts should I exercise? The ones that build me up or the ones that build up the church? The ones that build up the church, especially in corporate worship, and that's what Paul's talking about. The second principle is this if you're taking notes, in the gathering, speaking intelligible words, in other words, words that people can understand, is essential. So, when we gather, We should speak intelligible words. In other words, not fancy, big words, but words that people can understand. That is essential. That is important. That should be, that is applicable in our corporate worship to preaching, to praying, to singing. So if someone is praying in tongues, he's speaking to God. The the outsider who's a believer, they're kind of on the outside, watch this going. He might be praying to God, but he can't say, Amen, a.k.a. I agree with you because he has no idea what the guy is saying. But if he's praying in a word that you can understand that's intelligible, he can say, yes, Lord, answer that. I agree with that. I would love to see that happen. So the Corinthians, the church, should strive to build up the church. We should speak words that we can understand because what's important in corporate gathering? The building up of the church. All right, let's wrap it up and look at the last passage um, and, and then do an application. We're almost done here. Verse 20 says this. Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. It is written in the law, I will speak to this people by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Speaking in other tongues then is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is for unbelievers, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other tongues and then people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will not they they say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and some unbelievers or outsiders come in, he's convicted by all and is is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed. And as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. So in other words, what Paul is doing is he's giving another reason why speaking in intelligible words is so important. The first reason we kind of already talked about is so that the body can be built up, so that the believer can be strengthened, encouraged, and consoled. But here's the second reason. Now, if you notice, like, don't you feel like sometimes that passage is a little contradicting and confusing? It's like, wait, wait, time out here. He just said that Tongues is a sign for unbelievers and prophecy is a sign for believers. But then later on, he talks about like when unbelievers hear tongues, what are they going to do? They're going to walk out of there and say, y'all are raving mad. But if they hear prophecy, what are they going to do? So what does Paul mean? Like whose tongues and prophecy? Who is it a sign for? And I think there's a real easy explanation. If you notice, Paul is saying in, in verse 20, he basically is saying, Hey guys, I want you to not think like kids. I want you to be mature in your thinking. And here's why I want you to be mature in thinking. And so Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11 to 12. He says, I will speak to this people by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners. And even then they will not listen to me. The original context of that passage is the unbelieving Israelites. Are being judged by God, and God is sending in the evading Syrian army. Now, the Assyrian army is speaking a foreign language, a language that the Israelites have never heard. So basically, Isaiah says the second you hear people and see people that speak a strange tongue, I want you to think about God's coming judgment. You've sinned, you've rebelled against God, you'll hear that language, and you will think about God's judgment because God is using them to bring you into exile to execute his judgment because of your rebellion and unbelief. Okay? So Paul applies it now to unbelievers in the church. So in other words, when unbelievers come into the church and they hear a foreign tongue, in other words, they hear a strange language that is a sign for them a sign of God's judgment and it is a sign for believers prophecy is a sign for believers of God's blessing and here's why it is a sign for for God's judgment when they hear tongues for unbelievers because if unbelievers who've rebelled against God who are under God's wrath sitting under God's judgment if they do not hear God's word where will they be? Continue under God's judgment. So, if unbelievers hear foreign tongues, strange tongues, tongues that they can't understand, tongues that they can't interpret, guess what? What's going to happen? They will continue to remain under God's judgment. That's why Paul says, tongues is a sign for the unbeliever, a sign that you will continue to remain under God's judgment. And they will hear the church speaking a weird kind of language. They will reject the church. They will reject God's people and say, you're raving, mad. But the second reason is what will happen if they hear intelligible words, if they hear prophecy. Look at verse 24 and 25. But if all prophesy and some believers or outsiders come in, what will happen? Look at it. Look at the passage. Don't, don't, don't take me for it. He's convicted by all and is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed and as a result, he will fall face down, worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. In other words, when the believer gathers... And speaks intelligible words to one another. And God's word is being proclaimed. The unbeliever will come in. And they will be convicted by God's word. Their hearts will be exposed that they are in rebellion against him. And that they need a savior and they will fall on their face and worship God and say, God is truly among you. And I love the certainty of the words that Paul used. Again, look at verse 25. He's not, they might or they could. He says, they they will. Here's the thing about God's word. God's word is powerful. It's living. It's active. It convicts. It transforms, it renews, it strengthens. And when the people of God are committed to the word of God and they sprinkle it, whether it's planned or whether it's spontaneous throughout the service, and they make sure that they're using words that people can understand, what will be the results when it comes to unbelievers? Salvation. How wonderful is it to know that when God's word is being proclaimed, when God's people are gathering, that you as a believer are being strengthened, you're being encouraged. Maybe you're being consoled because you're going through a bad spot. And at the very same time, an unbeliever is being convicted. Their eyes are being opened. One of the quotes, I read it a long time ago. You know when you read something and it just jumps out to you and it's kind of seared in your mind and you never forget it? It's one of the quotes I read in 2016 and it really changed the way I approach scripture, really changed the way I preach. Uh, Tim Keller says this. He says, one must never decide whether to preach the gospel or not, but must always preach the gospel because the gospel saves the unbeliever and it strengthens and it edifies and it builds up the believer so in other words what must you always preach the gospel of jesus christ why because it strengthens us as believers it saves non-believers The entire word of God from Genesis to Revelation is all about God's working. You read the Old Testament. We read about the gospel in a sense of what we need God to do. We need a savior. We need a perfect prophet, a perfect priest, a perfect king. And then Jesus shows up and he is this perfect prophet, priest, and king. And the Bible shows us what he's done and accomplished for us. And then throughout the New Testament, he shows us what he has accomplished and what that looks like for the believer. And so this is what we must do. The word of God must be central in our corporate gatherings. So here's our response if you're taking notes. I don't think any of you are eager to exercise your spiritual gift of tongues or prophecy. Maybe you're a little freaked out. But I think here's a helpful application. Pursue love by earnestly desiring spiritual gifts that most build up the church. This is what we ought to do, pursue gifts, pursue love by earnestly desiring spiritual gifts that most build up the church. In other words, another way of looking at it, and maybe this will minister to our heart. In our culture, we live in such an individualistic society. Corporate worship or worship is really about us, what we like, what we don't like, what it, how it benefits us or benefits our family. But what is Paul really saying in the exercising of spiritual gifts? What's the most important? The building up of the body. And I really, what I think, when it when really ministers to our heart, maybe that's the conviction part. Corporate worship is really not about you as an individual. So what does that mean? That means sometimes we lay aside some of our spiritual gifts. We don't exercise it because it might benefit me, but it sure does not benefit you. I might lay down some of my preferences. Why? Because it's not about me. It's about the body, the people of God coming together, and we're all different, all different flavors, different styles. And we're coming together to make much of God. And what that means for me as an individual, I put aside some of my desires and some of my concerns. I lay that aside because I'm more concerned about the body as a whole than me as an individual. So what that means is, I'm not coming to church for me. I'm coming to church for, for you. You're not coming to church for you you're coming to church for for us because guess what maybe the Lord has laid a word on your heart and it might not look formal where you come and you take a mic and say I want to talk it might be somebody in the bathroom saying hey brother or hey sister I've been praying for you what's going on that could be a word of encouragement for somebody Or maybe just during the meet and greet, you hugging somebody. Or you saying, it's welcome, welcome, I'm so glad to see you. Don't you think that might be a word from the Lord to encourage somebody? Because that person might be thinking, like, nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. Nobody's even going to notice that I'm here. And then you come and you hug them. And it's almost as if the Lord has hugged them. Only through a hug. And so that's the, the big thing I want us to take away, regardless of our theological views of tongues and prophecies, put that to the side. What's more important is the building up of the church. How can we build one another up when we gather? How can we exercise our spiritual gifts for the benefit of others? That is what is key. And isn't that following the example of Jesus? Jesus, who really did not consider himself to be equal with God, something to be grasped. But he took on the form of a servant, obedient to the Father's will, even to the point of death. In other words, while Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he do? He put his, himself, his self-interest to the side, and the interest of the Father's will was his main priority. Because what was the Father's will? To redeem and to save a people for himself. And so Jesus walked that way and redeemed us and lived a life we could not live and die to death. We all were supposed to die. And as followers of Christ, Christians, that is what we should emulate. We should die to self, not look out for the interest of ourselves, but the interest of others. Be obedient to the Father's will, even to the point, well, for us it won't be death, but for us it will be uncomfortability. For the sake of others. And this is what I want to encourage you. Church is not about you, it's not about me, it's about the body of Christ gathering, glorifying the head of the church, which is Jesus. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness in making your word known. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that we can understand your word. Lord, can you help us um, to die to self? Can you help us to lay aside our interests, our desires? Can you help us not to think of ourselves, but to think of others? Can you help all of us to be concerned about the building up of the church, one another? Can you help us to be faithful in looking to you, Lord Jesus? And what an example you've shown us. And again, as we get to our communion, we're reminded of your body that was given to us, your blood that was shed for us. And the call that you've given us is to follow you, to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves and follow you. And it seems like a burden, but really what a great delight because at the end, we will receive our crowns of glory. And so help us to faithfully follow you. Help us to be reminded of what you've accomplished for us at the cross.